0: You're listening to The Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. This show is made possible by the Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school. Now, on with the show. Today on The Stories Behind Wine, we talk to Richard Mendelson. Richard Mendelson is one of the most influential figures in helping establish some of the 16 Napa Valley ABAs American viticultural areas, and he's the author of the book Appalachian, Napa Valley, Building and Protecting an American Treasure. Richard has a distinguished career. He is a Harvard University graduate, has his master's degree from Oxford University in England, and a degree from Stanford Law School. Richard is an attorney and author. He's the internationally recognized expert on vineyard and wine law as it relates to land use, intellectual property, business, and administration law issues. Over the past two decades, Richard has handled legal matters involving almost every aspect of the wine business. He also lectures on wine law at UC Berkeley School of Law, where he directs the programs of wine law and policy. He also lectures on a variety of vineyard and wine law topics at UC Davis Graduate School of Management, and as part of the University of Aix-Marseille and the University of Bordeaux in France. Richard has an interesting story to tell us about how he ended up in the wine business and how he played a pivotal role in establishing some of the most important AVAs in the Napa Valley.
1: Well, I wasn't really a wine drinker either growing up in Florida or during my college days at Harvard, but uh, I had the good fortune of uh, having a two-year fellowship to Oxford after um, my undergraduate degree. And when I arrived, I knew it was essentially two free years. It was paid. Um, And in addition to my studies, I had the notion that I was going to open up new vistas in my life, and one of them, wine, happened quite by happenstance. Um, one day uh, I had just left what we called the middle common room and was walking around the cloisters, went down this uh, set of stairs and found just one door uh, that uh, said on it, wine steward. And I knocked on the door and a f- bloke comes out and I said, what do you do here? And he handed me a list. And the list was a wine list of everything that was in the Oxford cellars, which, by the way, is a large cellar underneath all of the college buildings are wine cellars. And um, he explained to me that my access as a student to the wine cellar would be dictated by the length of my gown. And I was a graduate student, so I had a thigh-high gown, not quite as long as the uh, Don's um, full-length gown and longer than an undergraduate gown. In any event, it gave me access to a good range of wines in the cellar, and I determined right then and there, um, because the prices were unbelievable, that I was going to drink through that wine list in my two years at Oxford, and and that got me hooked.
0: How did that transcend into arriving here in, in Napa Valley and your entree into the Napa Valley wine Business. business.
1: Well, I was um, at Oxford for two years. Um, during my second year, I got serious enough to go down to London once a week for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust courses and got a higher certificate there. And then I decided I wasn't going to come straight back to the States as I had planned, but I wanted to go to France and work in the wine industry. I had learned to speak French by that point. Um, and I thought it would be good to round out that interest with on-the-ground experience. And I was able to land um, a job at bouchard en in in Burgundy. Then at the end of that period, which was a year, year and a half, I came back uh, to the States, to the West Coast. I'm an East Coaster, a Floridian by, by birth, but um, I wanted to see what was happening in the wine scene here. Um, so I moved to California, um, and, um, then ultimately went to, to law school at Stanford thinking I was leaving everything about wine behind me other than drinking and enjoying it, but certainly any professional interest. But lo and behold, it, uh, like things often do, it, um, uh, it came full circle and I ended up moving to Napa in 1986 after my time at law school.
0: Recently, you just um, authored a book called Appalachian Napa Valley. Tell us a little bit about what the inspiration for that book was and what the book is about.
1: Well, wine law in America, wine in America, is has such an interesting history. It's so idiosyncratic. The first book I wrote was a, a legal history of wine in America, going all the way back to colonial times, focused on prohibition. So that um, I did that book to because none of my clients could ever understand the idiosyncratic and and archaic laws, and and that was an intellectual academic exercise to put that in context. This book, um, Appalachian Napa Valley, I realized after doing as many Appalachians as I did that I had lived through a very interesting, formative time in Napa Valley's history Um, and it really, that history needed to be told. It needed to be told while I had my wits about me and also while a lot of the people who were engaged in it, um, were still living. Um, so I also realized that this would be the first book on this, but by no means the last and that I was, you know, in some sense trailblazing, um, to open up more, um, more scholarly works and interesting uh, nonfiction about this uh, incredible time that we've lived through in the last 30 years in Napa Valley.
0: You were involved in so many of the the AVA petitions. Tell us a little bit about, if you, if you would, how you got to be involved and uh, a little bit about the process by which an AVA is established.
1: Well, when I moved to the Napa Valley, I first started coming here in 1979 with some regularity. I was still in law school at the time. I didn't graduate law school till 81, but I was nearby. Stanford's a couple of hours away. Um, and um, by the time I m- moved here in 86, the Appalachian system was just uh, had just been founded. Um, it was a product of... In the late 70s and the early 80s, and it didn't formally take uh, effect until 1983. So I was here during that formative stage. I even worked at the Wine Institute, um, the uh, Trade Association of California Wineries, while I was in law school. So I was still steeped in the industry. When I moved to Napa, I, first of all, people didn't understand. Uh, there were no wine lawyers. Nobody knew what wine law was. But this was a new regulatory field. <clears throat> and I understood and had worked firsthand with Burgundies and French wine appellations generally. And I, that's what I did in my job in Burgundy. I would lead tours <clears throat> of the vineyards, then taste the wines from those areas, explain to our foreign buyers um, what, how the Appalachian system worked and ultimately close a sale. Um, so when I came here, I had a perspective that was unique, not that there aren't um, French winemakers in the Napa Valley then, there were, but I understood the innards of um, forming Appalachians. And um, I think it was just natural when I moved up here, people were thinking about it and they turned to me Um, groups of them, they were never one client, it was groups of people would pick my brain about how we, how they would go about, you know, navigating this new course. And I had an interest in it, I had a a knowledge, and I was, had the good fortune of really doing one after the other, um, for a period of more than 15 or 20 years, At the same time, from the day one when I arrived in Napa, I was representing the Napa Valley vintners. And through that, I had exposure to all all of the vintners and growers in the valley. So I think I had the connections, the knowledge, and right place at right time.
0: What exactly is an AVA, and what is the process by which it's defined? Because I I think a lot of people uh, are familiar with the specific AVA's, like Oakville or Rutherford, but they don't. Necessarily know what it means and the the steps it takes to uh, to establish an AVA.
1: Well, the motivation in the United States for the start there for forming AVAs in the first place was consumer protection, particularly after the Paris tasting in '76. Napa Valley vintners started increasingly to use place names on their label, Napa Valley, which had been allowed before um, uh, before the '70s. Um, but people were using place names, and in some of the cases, we didn't know where they were. And the regulatory agency, then the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the Treasury Department, one of whose missions in this area is consumer protection, decided we need to define these areas. And I remember two labels that really indicated that uh, need um, one was a martini wine called, the appellation was California Mountain. You know, of course, where California Mountain is. And then the other one was a lore wine called um, Northern California. But, you know, we didn't know where these places were. and For that matter, we didn't know where Napa Valley was. So um, ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency, started um, to search for what would be the right way of controlling Appalachians and interestingly the first place they went as a model that was not adopted were the controlled Appalachians of France and the old world generally. They actually were going to be called controlled Appalachians and the industry balked at that. We're too young to uh, we don't like controls anyway in America and and, and so that idea was thrown out um, and ultimately we settled on, what the French would call um, provenance or indication d'origine. It's really not a, it controls the, the boundaries within which grapes are grown, a percentage of which must be in the finished wine in order to use the name of the area. But there are no associated either um, enological controls or, for that matter, viticultural controls. You can plant as you know, whatever grape varieties you want in any appellation. So it's a, um, it's yet, in order to form that area, you have to prove viticultural distinctiveness and then enter all the sciences, pedology, soil science, climatology, geology, geography, geomorphology. So it's a serious endeavor to form an AVA.
0: Who ultimately decides that all these, uh, that the geology, the climate, um, typicity, who decides that those have enough merit to uh, give an AVA its, its status?
1: It's done through um, the AVA procedures or, or what are known as federal uh, rulemaking procedure. Um, you, Anyone can petition the federal government um, to form an AVA with proof of viticultural distinctiveness uh, the federal government, specifically the Treasury Department and what's now known as the Tax and tr- Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, TTB, will uh, weigh the evidence. If they think there's merit, they issue a notice of proposed rulemaking that's published and the public has an opportunity to comment. And it's a back and forth process with the government making the decision. Um, one of the recommendations I make in the book is that I think the federal government, particularly as these scientific areas and the notion of terroir gets increasingly sophisticated. They need their own experts. They're more like the judge. A judge doesn't necessarily know the, you know, it's going to going to weigh he or she, the facts of the case, but they're not necessarily an expert in that area. And that's how TTB is. Yes, they're wine people, but they're not really um, terroir specialists. And I think they need but my estimation, greater expertise. Nevertheless, to answer your question, they make the decision.
0: And as, as we know from your, your book, it's not always an easy process. With that in mind, Napa Valley AVA proposal, I think, dates back to 1979. Mm-hmm. And it was proposed in, in one form. And what we actually ended up with was completely different. Can you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Well, it's um, one of the seminal stories of the creation of American viticultural areas, which are what these beasts are known as, not, or a form of Appalachian, American viticultural areas. The uh, petition was put together by the Napa Valley Vintners Association and the Napa Valley Grape Growers jointly, um, and they really followed the, the Webster's Dictionary definition of uh, of a valley, a valley is um, you know the low lying area often cut in cut by a river between two mountains and and between those two mountains is what we call the watershed. It's where literally all the water flows. If it flows in another direction and not to the Napa River, it's not part of the Napa River watershed. And that seemed to be a very um, straightforward, understandable to consumers. Um, definition of the Napa Valley. Um, but uh, that neglected the fact that the eastern growers in Pope Valley and Wooden Valley and the like, um, that were outside of the Napa River watershed, they were in the Puda Creek watershed, were ex- would have been excluded. And, and, and the argument that played itself out in many other AVA petitions subsequently, was you shouldn't exclude those growers because their grapes had been used in to make Napa Valley wines. And so they had an equitable right, even if, the aside from the scientific factors of viticultural distinctiveness, that they deserved to be in the Napa Valley AVA. And then the arguments, and that's what happened, it opened up ultimately to a two day public hearing. Um, they were all over the map. Um, you know, for example, some people said the Eastern Valleys are too hot. They shouldn't be in the Napa Valley viticultural area, it's a different um, climate zone. Um, And and the retort was, well, you have Calistoga, the difference between Calistoga and Carneros is just as large, yet you have them in the one viticultural area. So you can see the kinds of arguments that get made. In the end, the federal government um, decided uh, to, and this is true of many of their early decisions, to be... um, welcoming and expansionist. They didn't want to exclude someone who had some colorable claim to be included. And in the end, they they were included. It, and And the Napa Valley AVA also went a bit further south. It had been cut off. Um, it did not include all of Carneros or, or the southern part of the county. And then when the, the final rule, as it exists today, Napa Valley is the entire county except for the Lake Berryessa, and the area northeast of Lake Berryessa.
0: Another fascinating story is that of the creation of Los Caneros AVA and some of the tension that existed there with two different groups. Talk to us about that, since that is uh, the second AVA that is founded in Napa Valley.
1: Well, unlike many AVAs that were the collaborative inspiration of a combination of vintners and growers. Um, Carneris was the brainchild of Lee Knowles, um, Tom Selfridge and others, um, Andre Chelichev for that matter at, um, at BV. Um, B.V. had established a premier vineyard down there, and I, 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 I took a, a shot of this bottle. I was lucky enough to find it. The inspiration for the carneris AVA was a 1979 B.V. Um, Carnaris wine, and it said Carnaris region on it. And um As the people involved, they're still living, which is the beauty of having written the book now, tell me they thought that uh, this area was deserving of AVA status. The name was already being used historically on labels, and they believed when they filed for a NAPA-only Carneros, which they did on their own without consulting anyone, you don't need consult anyone to file a petition. They thought there would be a Sonoma Valley or a Sonoma County Carneros, an equivalent each side of the county line. Um, But that's not what happened. The people uh, in the Sonoma side of what is today a larger two-county appellation felt just like the Pope Valley growers excluded they said what, if it's truly going to be a viticultural area, what makes Carneros distinctive is that horseshoe shape um, atop the, the San Francisco Bay with uh, similar soils, that windy climate, um, uh, and that you cannot stop that at the county line. Well, this was incredibly um, divisive because I recall Robert Mondavi at the Napa Valley hearing um Really, in a sense, paving the way for all the appellations that would follow within the Napa Valley, saying yes, we have diversity. But and he named them. He went north to south. We have Carneros. We have Oak Knoll. We have Yauntville. We have Oakville. We have Rutherford. He named them. Those became the future. But his notion was always that they would be subdivisions of the Napa Valley. They would be um, all interior, wholly contained within. And so to have something that, uh, you know, like Carneros, that now it's going to be part in another county, was strained the um, what some people thought would be consumer comprehension. Uh, They wouldn't know. Um, and, in fact, the labeling is, is fairly complicated. You can have a Carneros wine that's 85% Carneros grapes. You can have a Carneros Napa Valley wine. You can have a Carneros uh, Sonoma Valley wine. So you can parse this beast in a number of ways. So from a labeling perspective, it does get complicated. Nevertheless, the federal government decided in, in its wisdom to expand uh, the area to, a, to become a two-county AVA.
0: Did that end up setting a precedent for what was was to come, or or was that more of an exception to the rule?
1: That's a very good question. Um, People didn't know at the time. This is all brand new. It was precedential for sure, but you didn't know what was going to happen. From TTB's perspective, they then it was called ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Um, they were of the view that if the viticultural characteristics and the viticultural distinctiveness crosses a county line, so be it. We're going to continue to do this. But from the Napa Valley Vintners' point of view, uh, there was a strong movement to, and we went back and and, and essentially lobbied. Um, the federal government to please don't do this again in the Napa Valley. They did do it one more time in Wooden Valley, but otherwise we've been successful in not doing that. And the reason for it is that we wanted a framework that we could show to consumers, and they'd know that the overarching Appalachian AVA is Napa Valley, and then we're now going to show you the subparts that are equally distinctive, that comprise the totality. And we don't want any more overlaps. And fortunately, we have not had an overlap for 20 plus years.
0: So it's almost, to tie it back to your your days in Burgundy, there is some similarity, right, where we have these kind of nested hierarchy of, uh, of appellations. Uh, was, th- was that the intent? And do you see that that trend would continue? Do you see s- smaller subdivisions as a possibility in Napa Valley?
1: Well, let me, let me take that uh, in parts. The wine world understands nested AVAs. That's how we work, the hierarchy. Whatever the hierarchy is, it could be Grand Cru, Premier Cru, it could be um, uh, Truck and Bear and Auslazen, Auslazen, and, and the like. Here, the concept of nested AVAs, we think, is very meaningful to consumers. Um, the federal government, really doesn't understand that. And I think it's because the people there aren't wine drinkers. In fact, conceptually, they're confused by it. They they say, how can Napa Valley be distinctive? And Oakville is also distinctive. It isn't that confusing? and and if we have an Oakville shouldn't we cut it out of the Napa Valley because it it in it in itself is so distinctive that really it doesn't deserve to be part of Napa Valley and and later on we had this battle with TTB and and my argument and we ultimately won because i think they were stop, considering stopping doing any nested AVAs and we won for several reasons one because it was such a widespread concept in the wine world but also because It just makes common sense. It's like the focal length on a camera. Um, You know, if you zoom in, you're going to see something in much greater detail. When you zoom out, it doesn't mean it's any less distinctive. Or let me put it another way. We're both homo sapiens. We're men. The lady around the corner is a woman. She's also a homo sapien. So it's just, that's genus, species, subspecies. That's, again, a nested concept. So um, I'm very glad we won that. But coming out of it, it's very clear to me we will not have any more um, uh, nested AVAs inside of nested AVAs. They will not do it, which is why in the book I suggest and feel strongly that the, the last peel of the onion... Our vineyard designations. It won't be an Oakville bench inside Oakville. We fought that battle. Um, we recently had a similar case down in Paso Robles where they would not do a nested, a nested AVA of a nested AVA. You know, enough is enough. You've strained their cred, cred, credulity and credibility. So uh, that's where I think this is headed.
0: Great. You you segued perfectly into my next question. And that does have to do with, with Rutherford and Oakville. And in your book, again, you cover the original intent or desire was to carve out a bench, the Rutherford bench, and later on the, the Oakville bench that didn't come to pass. Talk to us a little bit about what the intention was of uh, proposing that those two benches be created as AVAs, and then why that didn't come to fruition.
1: Well, like all of these stories, they're fascinating. The people involved, you know, I can't tell you how many breakfasts I've had at the home of Tom and Martha May as we were struggling with this for years, because we probably met for a year before we even filed the proposal. The impetus was not, it was a defensive measure, not uh, otherwise, meaning that the press. Hugh Johnson, Jancis Robinson, and others, had already determined that there was a Rutherford bench. But they had it running from St. Helena down to Yontville. And when we looked at it, we said, we can't have the press define our backyard. We have to define it ourselves. And let's, let's go back to square one. Let's bring in all the scientists. Let's gather all the evidence and just determine how to slice this. And, and what the, one of the first premises... Based on consumer comprehension, was that a Rutherford name should not be applied in Oakville and an Oakville name shouldn't be um, applied in Rutherford. That they were, they had a distinct history and meaning uh, in the wine world as well as otherwise that should be respected. Um, we also saw that there were differences on, not only on a north-south, the north-south differences were more subtle, a gradual rise in elevation and other climatic features as you moved away from the bay and the cooling maritime breezes, but also an east-west difference, a profound east-west difference based on alluvial fans, drainages coming out of the respective mountains, the Mayakamas and the Vaca. Um, And the then mixed with this deep, fertile river soils in the middle part of the valley. So we had a lot of things going on that we wanted to capture. And we determined that you couldn't capture them without four AVA's. Uh, we thought it made perfect sense that we would take this bench area that was already well-known, divide it into a Rutherford bench and an Oakville bench. We actually came down to the river. Hugh Johnson, I think, stopped at the Highway 29. And then have larger community um, AVAs that captured these north-south historical differences. So we'd have a broader Rutherford, within which on the western side would be what Rutherford bench and Oakville and Oakville bench. This was the first time that anyone had applied for more than one AVA at a time, and I felt very strongly that we should do it. I continued to do it. We did 11 of them down in Paso Robles. Um, The reason for that is that I felt that TTB couldn't be trusted to to, um, not expand an area willy-nilly when anyone asked and that by giving them a context, almost like puzzle pieces, they wouldn't be able to change one puzzle piece without understanding what it did to another puzzle piece. So we would build in, through the petition, a context that would ultimately be important. Well, to answer your question without belaboring it, what happened was probably, now in hindsight, could have been predicted. We did not predict it and that was that the people in Oakville and Rutherford who weren't in the benches felt like second-class citizens. They felt left out, Um, and they made a a move, an immediate and powerful move, to to kill the benches. And it became neighbor versus neighbor. I mean, one of the things that I count as one of my greatest successes, really, I mean, this was so heated, is that some of the people that we battled in that um, you know, are my closest friends and clients to this day. So it was all in a, in a spirit of Napa Valley neighborliness. But in, in the end, it was not TTB that um, decided this. The people who petitioned for the two bench areas pulled them and withdrew it and settled on one Oakville and one Rutherford Appalachian.
0: This is this is what I love about the book. So many different different uh, stories, and and uh, again, like I said in the beginning, it it is it reads almost like a uh, a mystery novel, right? You never you don't know what the next page is is going to hold. Nin, Nineteen seventy six, we have the Paris tasting. We have Warren Winarski's wine reaching uh, reaching the pinnacle of of recognition in in that tasting. Surprising that stag's leap wouldn't have been one of the first avas or that we wouldn't have had a rush to to protect that that area it came in fact it came uh, a little a little bit later right in in the ava uh, process talk to us a little bit about why you think that might have been that it took a little bit longer for stag's leap to be to be founded or, or defined and that's another ava that that morphed from its original intent to 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 what it is today because there are so many strong personalities well, in that fight.
1: Well, there are. Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly what the story's about. Warren Winyarski is uh, both a highly uh, intelligent, uh, creative, um, forceful personality, as is Carl Domani. Both of them, uh, at right around the same time, started using Stag's Leap uh, as their brand name. So when you say, you know, to protect, well, the, the reason that Stag's Leap District wasn't founded as an AVA is because it had been first taken, and perhaps even the claim was exclusively taken as a brand name, in this case two brand names, um, by strong personalities who were willing to go to court to protect that name. So I was approached um, by John Schaefer and Dick Stelzner um, to uh, opine on whether um, there could be a Stags Leap. It was not called district then. When we first filed, it was for Stags Leap as a appellation of origin, American viticultural area. And my feeling was, it's funny, I still have this feeling today. You know, um, Warren and Carl may have used that name as part of their brand because the Palisades were behind where they were located, but they didn't exclusively own the area name. We call that fair use in the law. I, they, we have the right, I told them, to use it, to designate the area, and as the name of a viticultural area, and I think we will win. Um, we filed that petition. We gathered together a group of, I don't know, 15 growers and vintners. We, John Schaefer was the chairperson we filed um, for what was still one of the strongest uh, AVAs, in terms of viticultural distinctiveness, uh, geomorphological distinctiveness, meaning this ring of hills that you see where Pine Ridge is and Silverado Vineyards, and then crossing over uh, where Sinsky is and coming down the eastern ridge there. That's a funnel. This was very clear from the data. Stag's Leap is a very special place. Not only do I love the wines, but it's a special place. And I thought we had, you know, rock-solid proof. Plus the name, Stag's Leap, is written right on the very maps, the United States Geological Survey maps, that you have to plot the boundaries of an AVA. I thought we had a full—I thought we were going to win for sure. Um, And we did ultimately. But we didn't hold the boundary that we wanted. We had a very narrow boundary at first, not as narrow as some wanted. We went down as south to uh, just south of Chimney Rock. We went north to um, Sinsky, and um, then we crossed over. We went ridgetop, hilltop to hilltop to capture this funnel. Um, And as soon as we did that, People wanted in the first—well, the first thing that happened is that Warren screamed bloody murder said, you're taking my name, and rather than fight, we reached a compromise with him, which was to add the name district so that we would clearly differentiate for consumers the difference between a brand name and an area name, much like they do in France with AOC— you know, to designate, that's where it's from. I think that was a great move. I've used the word district in many, many, successfully in many AVA's since then. That was the name. Then we had one, two, one, two at least two boundary disputes, um, both of which we lost over very small amounts of ground, but we were determined. It was like the Maginot line for us, particularly at the end. We were not going to move north to the Yantville Crossroad and include Stan Anderson's land and that that land that that we thought was outside of this orographic or funnel-like geography. I even offered the federal government, I said, we have a grower who's on both sides of the line that's in question. Let us make the wine—it's farmed identically, same varietals, same farming techniques. Let us make the wine— and you taste, will make it the same way. You see if you can taste the difference. We say you can. They said, nah, too subjective. We're not tasting wine. So, and in the end, they decided that boundary administrability was easier. You know, it's easier to go to the crossroad than to find some little, you know, divider on, on barren ground. So we have the Stag's Leap District that we have today.
0: You bring up a, a, an interesting question, and that is the organoleptic aspect of, uh, of an a- AVA. Should that have been included at some point? Should there be a organoleptic component to assessing the viability or the validity of an AVA?
1: Well, we don't have... But the, I, yes, but... Yeah, the the yes is that if organoleptics will help you determine viticultural distinctiveness, if you really can control for those variables and control two wines that have been made from the same varietal, the same rootstock, the same farming technique, etc., then I think it will help you determine that goût de terroir will help you determine what's the right line. The but is that we do not limit varietals. Um, to specific AVA's. I mean, it's become that way over time. Napa Valley is now 43% Cabernet, but you don't have to grow Cabernet in Rutherford, Oakville, or Stag's Leap District. So the fact that you can grow any varietal, different varietals will show different typicity in different environments that, uh, I mean, it it makes it more murky.
0: We have a landscape of 16 AVA's here in, in Napa Valley, And we have this unique um, story of of Pritchard Hill, right, which a lot of people would say, boy, that would make a natural 17th AVA in Napa Valley. Doesn't seem like that will will come to pass anytime soon. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is all about, what the story with Pritchard Hill is all about?
1: Well, as the wine spectator said, it's the Rodeo Drive of The Napa Valley. It's obviously very unique. It sits right on top of Oakville. In fact, when we did Oakville, the people on Oakville East, we use the 500 foot contour line to define the difference between this essentially valley floor and toe slopes Appalachian and the mountain Appalachians. But um, where um, Dalla Valley and Patrick O'Dell at Turnbull and Oakville Ranch are, that they actually got included in Oakville. So it, that part of Oakville goes way above 500 feet based on the fact that that was an uplifted. Portion of Oakville and is very similar to the rest of Oakville. Well, just above that is Pritchard Hill. Um, it deserves uh, recognition as an AVA. I have no doubt it would pass the test. But we run back into the common problem of the name. The name is a registered trademark of Chapelet, and they do not want others to use it. Um, so. This poses the issue of uh, can someone take a name for all time that is a geographic name, recognized as a geographic name, and preclude others from using it? Um, I don't think so. But TTB, after the battle over Calistoga, which was a many-year battle fought out literally, ultimately in the floor of on the, in Congress, in the White House over grower wineries that were using the name Calistoga and didn't want to give it up. Or more importantly, they didn't care about letting there be a Calistoga AVA. They didn't want to have to make their wines from Calistoga grapes. So they resisted. They wanted to be grandfathered. Um, And uh, after that experience, TTB threw up their hands and said, we don't like brand name appellation conflicts. They are thorny. And we don't want to be involved in them. If you come to us with an Appalachian petition, work it out before you come to see us. So they'd like there to be peace. Uh, And I don't know that they want to wade into these conflicts, the very same conflicts we had with Warren and Carl in Stag's Leap District. But I'm convinced that, um, as an Appalachian proponent, that There deserves to be a Pritchard Hill. It is a fair use of that name. It doesn't infringe on someone's trademark. If used in conjunction with the varietal and the right type size, nobody's going to be confused. Um, And if you need to do it, put a modifier. Call it Pritchard Hill District. I don't see a Pritchard Hill happening in the near future because of these problems.
0: It's definitely a name that that has, uh, you know, in a lot of uh, students' minds, Already is an AVA, right? They, when you when you ask them to name the AVAs of Napa Valley, it's it's like they almost automatically include Pritchard Hill. So
1: we'll call it an unofficial AVA of the Napa Valley. Conjunctive
0: labeling is is another um, interesting concept that that exists here in, in Napa and, and something that became a state law in support of of this concept that I think was put forth by the Vintners. Tell us a little bit about what the reasoning was behind conjunctive labeling. Was it purely brand protection, Napa Valley?
1: Well, this is where my background in France, having worked in France, and then the fact that we had, um, you know, vintners from the old world as part of Napa Valley vintners. Warren Winyarski was involved with this. It became very evident in the late 80s that this move for what you call nested AVA's, which I think is a good name, they're all American viticultural areas from the federal government's point of view, the same standards, but still, they're nested, was going to continue. And that we were going to have, at that point, there were only two or three, but we would have 16. And we saw what had happened in Bordeaux, where if today you went into a wine shop and asked for a Oh, uh, uh, one of the first growths, you probably aren't going to see Bordeaux on the label at all. You may see Grand Vin de Bordeaux, but most likely you're going to see Margot and Pomerol and Saint-Julien and saint Estef, et cetera. So the, the smaller AVAs, Appalachians, eclipsed the larger, and the larger in Bordeaux became almost a c- commodity name It was not good, and we were able to learn from that experience and take steps before this happened because you can't do it afterwards. People become too set in their labels. You know, they don't want to change. So um, we had a a committee at the Vintners who came up with this idea. We looked at various ways of solving it, but this was the one that made the most sense, and we went to the state legislature, and the law essentially says – that if you're going to use any AVA that's wholly located, this does not apply to Carnaris or Wooden Valley. If it's whole if it's nested inside the Napa Valley, you must on the label have Napa Valley in direct conjunction and in type size no smaller than, you know, and there goes into those details. Purpose was to preserve the goodwill of Napa Valley. You can call that the brand of Napa Valley. And I think this has worked exceedingly well. It's been adopted in other, in Paso Robles and in Sonoma. Um, I think it served us very well over time.
0: I have a couple of other questions that um, have to deal with um, labeling restrictions, uh, not addressed specifically in, uh, in the book, but uh, since we have you here, we'd love to mm-hmm. pick your legal brain and uh, get your thoughts on this. Do you see any of the current labeling restrictions, such as the 75% named variety or 85% named AVA, changing uh, anytime soon? I know in, in California where we are very restrictive of the California name, if it's from California, it's 100% from California, whereas other states have looser restrictions. Um, any changes coming down, down the pike for that, closer restrictions or, or, or lesser restrictions? I
1: don't, I don't see it. But it is, I must say, traveling in international circles and uh, dealing with international issues. It's a source of uh, criticism of the Napa—of the United States regulatory regime. In in Europe, by and large, if you use an Appalachian name, it's got to be 100 percent of the grapes have to be grown in that area. And oftentimes, the wine has to be bottled within the Appalachian. You can't even bottle it outside the Appalachian at all. Um So, uh, however, that being said, in the new world, 85% grape content for the use of an appellation is pretty widely uh, respected. If you go to Australia, South Africa, Chile, Argentina, you know, go around the world, you'll see this 85% standard. Now, at one time, we actually developed at the Napa Valley Vintners a logo that it said NV 100%, and, and, and there was a certificate, which is a certification mark, and for this lasted for a couple of years, um, but during that time, if you were 100% Napa Valley grapes, you could put this additional logo on your label to show that. Um, similar rules apply to uh, grape varietals. The the idea behind both of these, because you can read all about this at the time of the formation of the AVA system, because all of these things were in flux, what percentages here, there. and, And the argument was that by allowing for a certain percentage of grapes to be Outside the AVA, you could make a better wine, one, and two, in years of natural disaster you wouldn't have a restricted supply. That was the rationale. Personally, I I don't I think it should be a higher content standard, but that's not gonna happen.
0: What is the current state of the out of state winery using napa valley we know that there are there are several um like city winery there is hawks crest i believe um winery making napa valley wines from fruit sourced from napa valley but vinified somewhere else is there going to be change with that is there is there a move to restrict that kind of uh kind of winemaking marketing practice
1: well, um, first of all, this is all before the federal government um, to, to digest. People have submitted their views um, about this issue. Um, my own view and the Napa Valley Vintners' point of view is that Napa Valley means that not only are 85% of the grapes grown within the Napa Valley viticultural area, but that the wine was fully finished. Um, that doesn't include bottling, by the way, fully finished in the sense of full fermentation in the state of California. Um, and so to move those grapes into another state, which can happen, and that wine can be made in another state, and I think it would be within the rights of that Vintner to say on a back label that the grapes were 100% from Napa Valley, from Napa County. But I don't think you use the name. Well, I feel strongly. It's not that I don't think you shouldn't use the name of an AVA that means something, has a definition, in a way that d- doesn't abide by that definition. So I think there's a way of a comp- letting city winery and the like state on their label where the grapes are from without confusing it and really free riding on the Napa Valley name. That that has a specific meaning and requirements, and we and we do have distinctive um, enological. You know, we have uh, uh, rules against chaptalization. You can't add sugar in California. You can in other states. So, and over time, I actually think we will develop more specific. Maybe not Napa Valley, maybe they start as California, but where is this headed? I mean, ultimately, you talk about the move between the tension between tradition and innovation, which we find in any appellation system for any commodity, and it'll always be there. But I think in the new world, as we get older, we will probably put in some of these additional controls, and they wouldn't apply out of state. So I think it's not only for what we have now, it's also, in my view, of what will happen in the future, it's important to respect that uh, uh, restriction.
0: If you had to do it all over again, I- anything you would have done differently in, uh, in your seminal role of, of helping, in, in essence, craft what is Napa Valley uh, today, anything where you would go back and say, gosh, I wish I would have known or I wish I could have done this?
1: Well, yes. And I've taken this lesson and it's what I did in Paso Robles most recently. Um, I think that appellations are best done um, in a in a context, in a framework. And it would have been helpful for the our forefathers, I, many of whom are still alive, to have sat in a room and really developed an overarching scheme. I actually think it would come up to be very similar to what we have. It's not the only scheme. You could have had a cottage, uh, a Swiss cheese approach where you have little Appalachians here, they're not contiguous, and it's just the way it is. But this system developed willy-nilly, one at a time, and I think we're lucky. We ha- You can look at other counties that don't have this kind of organization and this understanding of this nested approach. Um, but I think if the federal government won't do that because they don't require it, they'll, they'll take a petition. That's what they're used to. They don't even like multiple petitions. When we file them, we had to pave that ground. They're not used to that. It's one area at a time. And then they forget what they did. Somebody else comes along. If it's overlapping, okay, so be it unless the public stands up and makes a case against that. So I think a framework is, in fact, I think what would be helpful right now is that when somebody applies for an AVA, no matter where it is in the country, they should have the responsibility of talking about how it fits in with the already established AVA's in the area and, and provide the context. That's what consumers are looking for that's what how you play the wine game, right? How you go from the Cote de Nuit to, 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 to jevry Chambertin to Claude Bez. I mean, you need a system that allows you to do that. And I think there should be more focus on the overall framework and the overall system.
0: So would I be correct in saying, if I read between the lines, that it's almost as if the TTP needs to needs to be reworked and their their system of, of helping ABAs be established rather than working it backwards and and, and starting from the ABA perspective.
1: I think that's probably right. Uh, when I said this recently to someone, they jumped up and said, oh, my God, we don't want the TTB tasting wine. You know, we don't trust them to do that. But in terms of um, I suggest in the book that they could have an advisory committee. Those are allowed under federal law, and it would be wise people who just – you know, suggest, hey, let's step take a step back and they'll understand the wine world and wine consumers, and when somebody proposes something, can give that contextual understanding that sometimes can be missing when you go petition by petition without looking at that long view. Fortunately, we've done a good... In the Napa Valley, I think we've done a very good job... Um, somewhat hit or miss but I think by and large we we navigated those waters.
0: So one last question for you. Of all the AVA petitions you you've been I- involved with and all the the personalities and I'm sure emotional discussions around a, a, a dining room room table any favorites that that stick out that says boy you know this is this is something that I'm was so proud to be involved involved in in, in creating?
1: yeah I think stag's leap district it was very emotional um I know those wines inside out i i i um I felt we broke new ground there with using the word district for the first time, bringing people in. Um, to join the cause, we did not hold the boundary, but we set the precedent for what's important. We, one of the things that's happened with AVAs is, is that in the olden days, we, when we were doing Carneros, we talked about region one, two, three, four, and five. Now we've got weather stations in every vineyard. This has gotten incredibly sophisticated. And when I look back over the arc of all the AVAs in Napa Valley, Stags District was the first move. If you compare it, the Carneros petition was maybe five pages. I think our our Stags Leap District petition was a hundred pages. We really brought evidence to bear, and and that set and that's what it is required today. So and plus the characters in Stags Leap District are so f- fun. Um, it was a lot of tension, but it was also camaraderie. And and, and you know, let's after these AVAs are formed, usually there's a Vintner grower group that, as you know, that directs it. And look at how well, they've done Stagsley, wine district wine growers, the Oakville wine growers, Rutherford Bench Society. I mean, they've really done a good job. So, uh, that's the proof of the pudding.
0: You know, we've only just touched on on uh, on some of the intrigue and 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 information that exists out there. Obviously, I encourage folks to to go out and 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 pick up your book. Where would they best be able to do that? Obviously, Amazon, the the 800-pound gorilla of Booker The 800-pound book
1: uh, gorilla, local bookstores, and then there's a publisher who has a book website called AppalachianNapaValley.com, and you can order direct from the, the website.
0: Right. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you taking your time today to um, enlighten us on a lot of these uh, these interesting facets of Napa Valley, and hopefully we'll have you back uh, sometime in the future. Thank
1: you, Thank you for the wonderful questions. Appreciated.
0: Thanks for joining us today for the stories behind wine and our discussion with Richard Mendelssohn. If you're interested in picking up a copy of Richard's book on Appalachian Napa Valley, Building and Protecting an American Treasure, make sure and visit either Amazon.com or you can go to AppalachianNapaValley.com and order his book as well. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to the Stories Behind Wine podcast. This show is made possible by the Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and share us with your friends.